Section 3, Top 10 Thoughts on Bitcoin. 3.1, please check on Peter Schiff. Sun Tzu said, gold will get demonetized so brutally your grandkids will think a gold digger is someone who scavenges for metal scraps in the dumpster to sell for sats. Bitcoin has eaten gold's lunch for a decade. This should have been a boom time for gold bugs, high inflation, low trust in government, commodities booming, but instead gold was outflanked by a faster, younger, wilder horse in Bitcoin. Investing $100 in gold 10 years ago would have yielded $102 today, underperforming inflation. Meanwhile, investing $100 in Bitcoin over that time period would have yielded $1.7 million. Ouch, Peter Schiff. Bitcoin shows no signs of slowing down either. Given its macro tailwinds and multi-cycle resiliency, it's hard to envision a scenario where Bitcoin falls out of favor anytime soon while the rest of crypto rallies. From a regulatory standpoint, investors are more comfortable than ever with digital gold. Now that multiple institutional vehicles exist to access Bitcoin and other early adopters have already paved the way, Paul Tudor Jones, MicroStrategy, Tesla, El Salvador, Miami, etc. The institutions are coming has flipped to the institutions are here. The strongest tailwind at our back was best summed up by Marty Bent, who noted the money owed to the pensioners is simply too much. The returns produced are too low, and even when they are realized, they are denominated in a currency that is losing purchasing power by the day. With stocks at nosebleed levels, bonds yielding negative real returns, and inflation here to stay, Bitcoin remains the best liquid bet on the institutional rotation to inflation-resistant store-of-value assets. It won't be the only winning crypto asset, but it will continue to pull up the rest of the asset class as crypto rapidly replaces debt in diversified portfolios. If quantitative easing actually does debase a currency, duh, then as Raul Powell pointed out, we'd have a bunch of charts to reflect that. S&P index growing in lockstep with Fed balance sheet, real estate prices rising on a lag after fresh QE, etc. And we do. Money printer go brrr, buy everything, especially the orange coin. Section 3.2, the king stay the king, no flippinings. I'd put the probability of a flippening next year at maybe 20%, and not because ETH is money no matter what Sotheby's says. If ETH does manage to flip in Bitcoin, it won't be because it's a superior money, but rather because the market values the world's most unique user-owned computing platform and its earnings and growth potential more highly than it does digital golds. In other words, we'll look at Bitcoin versus ETH like we do M0 versus Google. This isn't an original thought. BitMEX founder Arthur Hayes broke this analogy down in a piece on the flippening debate where he says, one, it's impossible for ETH to be the world's best virtual computer and the world's best money at the same time. I agree. And number two, crypto's largest monetary network will likely be bigger than its biggest distributed tech company. Yes, again. That said, it's possible to hold the view that crypto as a whole will outperform Bitcoin, i.e. Bitcoin dominance will decline, while Bitcoin retains its top spot atop the global leaderboard, Ethereum is more a missable target than Bitcoin for competitive layer one computing platforms. Ethereum's scarce resource is the finite capacity of its global settlement ledger, and this year proved how quickly other layer ones could siphon demand for crypto transaction settlement when Ethereum's ledger gets too expensive. More of this in Chapter 8. On the other hand, Bitcoin's scarce resource is its simple monetary meme. Its pure-play money competitors are less intimidating. Dogecoin, Shiba Inu, Bitcoin Cash, Craig Cash, and the forks of their forks are not much to write home about. 
Perhaps you like Doge. There are plenty of smart investors who do, like Suju, who loves Doge fundamentally due to its virality, community, humor, and unserious user base who spent 2021 driving meme stocks to the moon too. I understand this thesis, but it falls flat in one crucial regard. Jokes get old, and even early holders will eventually realize they're sitting on real gains and find a less expensive joke. Reflexivity isn't fun on the way down. There won't be an institutional buy wall for cute Shiba Inus when the trend reverses. An unserious user base could also lead to a large swath of users who panic sell in Q1 once they get their tax form and realize the magnitude of their obligations. Bitcoin investors aren't capital gains tax novices. Many Dogecoin punters likely are. There are two other proof-of-work coins that are also in the currency conversation, of course, Zcash and Monero. But holding them requires a long-term commitment and true peer-to-peer -peer private transactions and a warm embrace of pain. They might be assets you want to own just in case your country breaks down and you need to flee with a bolt bag and a ledger brain wallet. But the smartest thing I ever did was reverse my dummy dum dum super Zcash long trade last December and plow it back into ETH where it belonged. I'm writing this with tears streaming down my cheeks, but Multicoin was right about privacy as a feature, and I'd rather make money than be right. Zcash is still 1% of my portfolio, and I still love Zuko, but it's no longer in my top five. Others have outrun Zcash. It's not my fault. There's really no credible flipping in competition for Bitcoin aside from Ethereum, but ETH has to watch its back too. Bitcoin dominance slid down from 71% to 42% this year. Bad. But ETH's smart contract platform dominance also slid from 80% to 60%. It might bleed additional value to its new Layer 2 roll-up allies that come to market in early 2022. There may be higher upside plays in crypto, but there was nothing wrong with owning GE during the dot-com boom. GE stock went from $100 in mid-1999 to $450 in mid-2000, then back to $185 in mid-2003. In four years, it crashed to a level 85% higher than it found itself in the market run-up. That could very well be Bitcoin's trajectory if Web3 reaches Web1 levels of insanity. Would you hate if Bitcoin crashed from 275 k to 125 k next year? Section 3.3, Multi-Chain Reserve. We'll talk about interoperability in Chapter 8, but for now, I'll say that I think UD has it right. If the future is one of hundreds or thousands of interoperable blockchains, then end users won't necessarily know or care which blockchains the monetary applications run on. Bitcoin holders will hold and use Bitcoin as a digital gold alternative without worrying about the technical details that govern which chain or pegged Bitcoin derivative they use along the way. Just so long as the base Bitcoin blockchain hums and produces blocks every 10 minutes as a settlement layer. More than 1.5 of the Bitcoin supply is already wrapped on Ethereum through BitGo, more than twice as much as was locked at the end of last year. But that may be the tip of the iceberg as millions of Bitcoins begin to hit other blockchains as well. A few demand drivers for Bitcoin. Number one, Bitcoin will be a reserve on other layer ones, whereas ETH will be a competitor to them. Number two, cross-blockchain bridge protocols like Rune will unlock more peer-to-peer -peer swaps. Number three, fears over stablecoins, independence, censorship, resistance, or collateralization could lead to more interest in Bitcoin collateralized crypto dollars. Ethereum bulls may protest that this is exactly what makes ETH good money and a capital asset. It's compatible with other EVM chains and layer two roll-ups and already collateralizes stable coins like Maker's Day.
but that's backwards looking. Bitcoin has a 2.5x market cap lead and a much lower rate of collateralization as working capital today, which means it's being under leveraged. And there's a much higher ceiling for new Bitcoin as DeFi collateral than ETH. I think wrapped slash synthetic Bitcoin tradable on other blockchains will double again in 2022. 75% confident we'll see 3% wrapped at least as more long-term Bitcoin holders realize they can borrow more cheaply against their holdings in DeFi than other centralized services. You can read more about it in the DeFi assets facilitating Bitcoin's interoperability in our report. Section 3.4, the gift of Bitcoin ETFs. We're going to spend some time on ETFs in Chapter 5 because their approval was one of the most important developments of the year. They also highlight the decade-long ineptitude of the SEC. I know, I know, we're this close to Chapter 4, offering zero redeeming qualities versus assets acquired directly on custodial exchanges and generally represent all the things normies were supposed to hate about Bitcoin. They're complex, volatile, terrible investments that enrich Wall Street promoters and trend towards zero over time. Despite Bitcoin's futures ETF's toxicity, it's a fortunate accident of history that the SEC protected retail from them and Wall Street by mucking up the approval process for so long. Grayscale Trade Chapter 5 and its one-way inflows may have pulled forward institutional demand from investors looking to capitalize on GBTC's public markets premium and from a specific form of retail demand for those holding Bitcoin in tax-exempt retirement accounts. But even then, eight years of SEC foot dragging limited the Bitcoin float in ETF-like vehicles to just 5%. An early approval could have created centralization risks in Bitcoin's money supply, risk that is minor today, reducing the odds Wall Street can ever manipulate the Bitcoin markets. I'll have some juicier predictions on ETFs for the other sections, but my bet is that the total Bitcoin locked in ETF vehicles will remain less than 10% of outstanding Bitcoin supply in the next five years. As other large institutions build positions, the smart ones will go for direct exposure and lower fees. To the extent we see more than 10% of Bitcoin supply locked in ETF structures, it will likely be due to their inclusion in other ETF products such as ARK invests $400 million of GBTC holdings in ARKW. Quick aside, if you're someone that's interested in crypto and you're already writing newsletters that are data-driven, we invite you to apply to our Masari Hub. Kickstart your career by becoming a Masari Hub analyst. Contribute research to a growing and thriving ecosystem. Build your resume. Start the revolution. If you're an absolute crypto NFT fiend that enjoys writing, Fact-based articles, you might as well get paid for it. Come check us out. Section 3.5, the great fall of China's Bitcoin industry. For years, Chinese miners accounted for over 70% of Bitcoin's hash rate. Then the CCP turned hostile last year and implemented an outright mining ban this spring, leading to a multi-billion reversal of fortune for the West and the most incredible chart I've seen in eight years. The study isn't perfect, and I'm sure that Bitcoin mining hasn't gone to absolute zero in mainland China, but that doesn't make the chart any less directionally insane. It's hard to overstate how incredible this development was. Since 2013, China's shadow in the Bitcoin markets has loomed large. Investors worried what would happen to the network security if Chinese mining capacity was turned off. It turns out, basically nothing. Policymakers worried about the carbon footprint of mining where China had one of the dirtiest coal-powered energy mixes. That's out too. 
then China criminalized all trading in an attempt to enforce capital controls and seeded a historic integration opportunity with the open financial markets of the future in the process. Now Bitcoin is back to all-time highs. What's more, before the CCP kicked them out, we got tangible proof from the miners that they would migrate their capacity to wherever energy was cheapest, regardless of the source. Each year, you could guarantee that capacity would move to the clean and hydroelectric-rich Sichuan province during the abundant rainy season and back to coal-powered plants during the remainder of the year. The Cambridge study showed this seasonality in striking detail. Last year, I mused that even if China remained dominant in mining, the giants in the U.S. that may enter the race, such as Fidelity or DCG, might be okay with mining at a small loss to help show they take geopolitical risks seriously. Instead, the CCP just gifted us an entire industry. DCG's foundry even took the top spot in the global Bitcoin mining leaderboard for the first time. It's such a senseless, strategic blunder that it's hard to imagine the CCP failing to undo the mining band, at least, even if they continue to keep a close eye on trading and capital controls in 2022. It sounds like these policies are already being reconsidered for a good reason. I predict mining is back in the mainland by mid-year, 70% confidence, especially as the CCP realizes that a proof-of-work mining can double as clean energy stimulus. Who will take these poor huddled miners? 3.6. Bitcoin as clean energy stimulus. Senator Warren warned us we need to crack down on environmentally wasteful crypto mining practices to protect the planet. The European Union's top market regulator warned about soaring environmental costs from investing in digital currencies. We were even warned of the creeping exposure to crypto within ESG portfolios as if Bitcoin were a bona fide toxin. I will admit that it's bad optically for the global Bitcoin network to consume a lot of energy at a time when world leaders, the media, and corporate responsibility greenwashers are obsessed with emissions. But Bitcoin's energy consumption is only a problem because most politicians and mainstream media pundits are either stupid, lazy, or dishonest, usually all three. Let's talk about Bitcoin's actual role in our clean energy future, the TLDR. Number one, curbing global emissions in a reasonable time period is politically impossible. Number two, still, we should try to curb the biggest emitters to, in quotes, bend the curve. Number three, Bitcoin can help reduce emissions by recycling otherwise wasted slash stranded energy. Number four, mining infrastructure could actually help subsidize new clean energy capacity. Number five, all while Bitcoin offers S and G solutions in ESG as well. Let's go one at a time. Number one, curbing emissions is politically impossible. Will anyone just like be honest for one fucking second, China will not unilaterally curb their emissions in a meaningful way, and they contribute 50% plus to global emissions. Some Chinese companies now pollute more than entire nations, and China didn't commit anything substantial in recent climate discussions. Why should they? Likewise, do we think Russia is about to rush unilaterally to the climate table? How about Turkmenistan, which boasts 6 million citizens and 31 of the 50 largest methane releases in the past two years? Oh, and the literal gates of hell. India, the world's largest democracy, has laid out plans to get carbon neutrality by 2070. 50 years, great! Whose 50-year forecast has us hitting net zero before major currency failures and debt crises, if not hot war and the AI apocalypse? Carbon capture and clean crypto or climate and political chaos, those are the options. Number two, 
Crypto is eating the world, but Bitcoin mining isn't. The always excellent Lynn Alden broke this down in a recent post, but Bitcoin's environmental impact should scale sublinearly to its economic impact. The problem is that proof-of-work mining will either go away in the short order in the event of failure or consume up to 1% of the world's energy if it grows to a $20 trillion global settlement layer and systematically important Fedware complement or substitute. Big numbers, but not if crypto otherwise automates large swaths of financial services whose current footprint is closer to 3% of global emissions versus Bitcoin's 0.1%. Bitcoin's declining inflation rate means declining proportional security spending, which means declining proportional hash rate intensity. If anything, most of us Bitcoiners realize that the bigger concern is around Bitcoin's current disinflationary supply schedule. The declining block rewards as a percentage of total market cap brings on the risk that, if anything, a fees-driven block reward will not attract enough energy to secure the network. In most economic circles, you get in trouble for using the word hyperinflation, as many fear the phenomenon to be self-fulfilling prophecy. In Bitcoin, the same is true for anyone who calls out the risk of too low inflation. Raise the issue and prepare to duck from 21 million truthers. Number three, Bitcoin recycles energy. It turns out that some of the world's cheapest, clean energy sources are stranded off-grid, just waiting to be tapped. If only there were some portable, geographically agnostic consumer of that capacity. Proof-of-work miners, as we saw from the Sheshwin chart, are those consumers greedily absorbing the lowest margin cost kilowatts available. Like water on a 3D topographic map, Bitcoin miners are just benevolent Daniel Plainviews, really. It's the dynamic that leads Nick Grossman and Square and ARK Invest and others to refer to Bitcoin as money battery. I hesitated using this framing initially. It sounds too convenient, right? But I've come around. A perfect example of the money battery in action is in the natural gas venting, methane leakage, and flaring burning methane to carbon dioxide. In the U.S., we flare more natural gas each day than Bitcoin's peak global annualized energy usage. From Lynn again, the University of Cambridge estimated that global flare gas recovery potential is eight times larger than Bitcoin's network's energy usage in 2021. In other words, virtually the entire Bitcoin network in its peak, 2021 form could hypothetically be run off stranded natural gas in the U.S., let alone the rest of the world. Flaring converts carbon commodities that would be 100% wasted into bitcoins. This isn't theoretical. It's magical. It's also not new. I wrote about some of the companies doing this work in the theses two years ago. This isn't a state secret either. The dynamic can likely persist indefinitely. Consider, for example, that 20% of natural gas in North Dakota is stranded and flared rather than collected. Bitcoin miners are unique in that they might be able to capture value in remote areas like North Dakota, even relative to the energy-intensive work like server farm operations, because they have higher tolerance for network downtime and low bandwidth environments. Policymakers, for the love of God, your issue is with the American consumers' energy habits and our energy industry, not the Bitcoin energy recycling factories. I know it sounds like a fantastical, self-serving narrative, but Bitcoin mining really could be this good for America. Not a single marginal polar bear must die as a result. But Bitcoin bears are another story. Every bear must die. Throw in some subsidies and American Bitcoin mining could be net negative for emissions within a few years. 
Even Ted Cruz gets it in a quote saying, 50% of the natural gas in this country that is flared is being flared in the Permian right now in West Texas. I think that's an enormous opportunity for Bitcoin because that's right now energy that is being wasted. It's, it's being wasted because there's no transmission equipment to get that natural gas where it could be used the way natural gas would ordinarily be employed. It's just being burned. There's so much potential here. We simply can't squander this gift from the CCP. Number four, Bitcoin is a green energy stimulus. Let's hammer this home and think about Bitcoin mining not only as a potential zero emitter, but as big energy's sausage makers, processors that take the leftover waste and turn it into something palatable. The coastal elites will scoff at this notion. They don't need Bitcoin's pink slime because they aren't starving for financial products or prime beef. But what about communities for which mining investments could help plug clean CapEx budgets? or emerging markets with vast renewable resources but little present consumption demand for all that clean energy. Bitcoin miners are unique business partners because they optimize for a single variable, lowest kilowatt hours, and serve as a mobile energy buyer of last resort for energy that can't be easily transported. You could see nomadic miners incorporated into new clean energy capex for towns that need them to offset sluggish early demand, then kick them out to the next town. The reverse is also true. For low-income countries with cheap energy, miners might help finance or subsidize CapEx in return for cheap energy rights. Bitcoin mining is already anecdotally and with increasing frequency powering clean energy investments. Aside from flaring, there's the mining facility in Niagara Falls that's taken over a former coal power plant and now leverages hydroelectric power. Its owner previously operated out of coal plants in China. There's North Vancouver, which will be heated with the 96% recycled energy from Bitcoin miners through tech developed by Mint Green. Other novel innovations will inevitably arise as well. If you're skeptical, I don't blame you. I used to think this was more marketing fluff than substance, but China changed all the variables. Ben Thompson nailed it in a recent post saying, One of the biggest mistakes we have made as a society is assuming that energy is intrinsically scarce. Arguments that... Bitcoin actually provides incentives for investing in energy abundance are self-serving, but that doesn't mean they are wrong either. Nick Carter went through a similar conversation from skeptic to evangelist this year too, saying, Bitcoin mining is converging with the energy sector with amazing rapidity, yielding an explosion of innovation that will both decarbonize Bitcoin in the medium term and will dramatically benefit increasingly renewable grids. What's more, it appears that only Bitcoin, rather than other industrial load sources, can actually achieve some of these goals. He credits the emergence of lifecycle mining, a slowing ASIC developmental cycle, ASIC an acronym for application-specific integrated circuit, and hybrid grid-based and behind-the-meter mining systems. Square noted in a white paper on Bitcoin's clean energy potential, as society starts deploying more solar and wind, we could potentially unlock profitable new use cases for that electricity, like desalinating water, removing CO2 from the atmosphere, or producing green hydrogen. This really could be the mere beginning of a beautiful friendship. Number five, the cost of the dollar. You could argue the financial industry and the military-industrial complex should at least be included in any comparative environmental analysis. But the real problem with ESG militants' attempted cancellation of Bitcoin, aside from the fact they're wrong about the negative quote-unquote E externalities, is that they also ignore the S and G benefit of crypto in the process. 
Alex Gladstein from the Human Rights Foundation summed it up best in an incredible piece on the hidden costs of the U.S. dollar. Namely, even if policymakers think Bitcoin is irredeemably dirty and wasteful and crippling to the future of the planet, they shouldn't be able to discriminate on energy usage preferences when the petrodollar props up authoritarian regimes, leads to military aggression, and fuels more fossil fuel consumption in the process. Enough people believe in Bitcoin's value as an investment in new social and governance experiments that its S and G arguably offset even the critics' worst-case E scenarios. Bitcoin is inherently political. Of course, there's another E that may prove compelling to policymakers, the economic impact. U.S. mining is big business. The U.S. listed miners now sitting at nearly $1.5 billion in Bitcoin at current prices, hundreds of millions in annual earnings, and significantly improved profit margins due to the China mining capacity exodus. That's what Senator Cruz latched onto this fall in thoughtful remarks on the subject at a Bitcoin conference in Austin. Mining infrastructure is something that could even lead to some unusual alliances between someone like Ted Cruz on the right and AOC on the left. If you want the economic growth that comes with crypto and you want to subsidize and stimulate green energy investments, subsidize clean mining. It's a zero-sum global market, which means that clean energy subsidies would drive out more expensive, dirty mining. The net result would be a Bitcoin network with low carbon intensity dominated by the West. This doesn't even have to be at government level. Nick also points out that ESG investors could invest in renewables only, publicly traded miners like Iris Energy, and have the same effect as government subsidies by lowering green mining's cost of capital. Okay, okay, I'll move on, but I can't help but get fired up about this subject when politicians and the media just outright lie about the dynamics. Do your homework. Number seven, proof of stake works because proof of work worked. Meltem said... Proof of work and proof of stake are not substitutes. They are not even complements. They are two fundamentally different things and should not be compared or contrasted. As with the Bitcoin is money, no ETH is money debate, this is one of those areas where the two sides talk past each other. Proof of work burns energy in order to prove the network is providing fair settlement assurances at global scale without reliance on the network's owners, who could easily centralize over time. The separation of transaction processing incentives and ownership responsibilities is important for a network that aims to be a non-sovereign alternative to money. By contrast, it's suitable to think of proof-of-stake networks which employ token holders as collective governing bodies as business analogs. Each individual proof-of-stake network comes with centralization, censorship, and coercion risks, but that's okay. The real proof-of-stake decentralization comes from thousands of interoperable proof-of-stake blockchains, which will each offer their own unique token incentives, emission schedules, governance rules, target applications, etc. over the long term. You wouldn't want a monetary system where Elon Musk owns a large percentage of the money supply and a large vote in which economic activities were valid on that underlying network and a large claim on the fees and seniorage generated by that network. Too much power over one half of all transactions. On the other hand, you'd probably have no problem if you accumulated a similarly large percentage of a decentralized self-driving taxi service as it's merely a single Web3 application. Proof-of-work success paved the way for proof-of-stake research to be taken seriously. That doesn't mean proof-of-stake will overtake proof-of-work as a superior security model, nor does it mean proof-of-work will prove infallible. It means proof-of-work was first, and probably still best, for stateless money apps. 3.8. Proof-of-work protects minority rights. 
my former Coindesk colleague, Pete Rizzo, wrote a thought-provoking piece arguing that Bitcoin's social contract, proof-of-work mining scheme, and bias for user-activated soft forks make it the only crypto protocol to protect minority rights amidst the tyranny of the majority offered by hard forks. If you read up on the debate on Twitter, this may seem academic or semantic, but it's probably one of the most important things a new institutional entrant to crypto should seek to understand. We're five years removed from the only major contentious hard fork in Ethereum's history, and four years removed from Bitcoin's user-activated soft fork, which ended a multi-year scaling battle between exchanges, miners, users, and core developers. If you didn't live through that, it's tough to describe how risky these political rifts can feel and how badly protocol politics could go wrong in future stalemates. For instance, do you think the most likely path to censorship is in soft fork code activated by a validator network whose incentives are tied to ongoing transaction processing or code that's hard forked and activated by the majority of the owner base whose incentives are tied to the capital they have accumulated? Bitcoin's bias for soft fork upgrades prioritizes user coercion over succession, keeping the family together sort of like a drag-along shareholder provision. You're ultimately getting pulled through to the new version of the protocol automatically once a large enough contingent of users signal their support of the fork. With Ethereum, on the other hand, it's more like an iOS upgrade. Yes, new hard forks are an opt-in for users, but only in the sense that they either submit to the upgrade or lose access to the primary network. This tyranny of the markets diminishes over time in an internet of blockchains that isn't dominated by Ethereum. Exit equals choice. I don't hold a strong opinion here since I'm invested in both Bitcoin and Ethereum, and I believe both will succeed. It's worth further study if you're new. This is also a dense section. I'm sorry for the 301 level interlude, but I didn't have time to simplify it after 800 hours of writing. Section 3.9, the Bitcoin Roadmap. It was a full four years since Bitcoin's last major upgrade in soft fork, and things were a bit less controversial this time around. Nearly the entire global Bitcoin mining apparatus signaled support for the Taproot upgrade this spring, and the upgrade went into full effect in November. As an aside, you could easily have tracked the full life cycle of the Taproot's BIPs, not to mention protocol updates for the 200 other crypto networks using our Intel product. For the layperson, Taproot makes Bitcoin's transactions cheaper. Its adoption of Schnorr signatures will enhance Bitcoin's privacy defaults and fungibility by making all transaction types, both simple payments, lightning channels, and multi-sig transactions look the same. And it could unlock the next phase of development in Bitcoin's lightning network, which may finally break out next year after years of me writing that it may finally break out next year. To be honest, Taproot doesn't seem like a big deal for privacy and Lightning, but less so for Bitcoin's smart contract future. We've been talking about sidechains since 2014, and they lost. As discussed earlier, Bitcoins could be wrapped as collateral on other platforms at scale, but that still won't make Bitcoin technically integral in new smart contract applications outside of payments. I've invested in a couple of companies leaning on Lightning, e.g. Collider, and its real-time settled derivatives exchange, and I'd like to see Jeremy Rubin's Sapio succeed, so I'm cautiously optimistic there will be winners here. 
but I've also been around long enough to curb my enthusiasm for Bitcoin applications outside of the payments and store of value settlement use cases. An independent alternative to Fedwire is plenty big, thanks. Indeed, Bitcoin is at 300k on-chain Bitcoin settlements per day versus 800k daily Fedware settlements now. When you consider that hosted services frequently leverage single transactions to batch hundreds or even thousands of smaller transactions at a time, Bitcoin has already overtaken Fedware in throughput. Lightning could crank that pace up even further. Development on Bitcoin is like building a rocket, while development on Ethereum has historically been more similar to building a Silicon Valley startup. The stakes are higher in Bitcoin, arguably, we'll get into this in Chapter 6, and you need rocket science level security to build a reliable cryptographic alternative to Fedware. Ongoing updates and investments in Bitcoin's core code and communications infrastructure show what I'm talking about. B22O released this fall connected Bitcoin to the second anonymous communications protocol, the Invisible Internet Project, in order to complement the Tor integration and build resiliency to Bitcoin's secure messaging capabilities, making it even harder to de-anonymize users. Blockchain's efforts to shoot Bitcoin satellites into space sound quirky, but it also guarantees network access anywhere society and the internet breaks down. That doesn't make Bitcoin a bet on a Mad Max future. Instead, it's a life raft for refugees, current and future. Societal breakdowns don't happen everywhere at once. That's the point of having 190 plus countries and then adding a borderless value transfer layer. The work is important. 3.10, lightning strikes El Salvador. It seemed like lightning had lost the payments foot trace to dollar-backed ERC-20s definitively. Lightning saw negligible growth in 2020 in channel capacity and nodes, even as channel capacity exploded over the summer this year and sits 3x higher in Bitcoin terms year to date. It is just $200 million in total capacity, while ERC-20 stablecoins are set to clear $5 trillion of settlements on the year with no capacity limits. For all their progress, though, Neither ERC-20 stablecoins nor any other crypto asset accomplished what Bitcoin did this year as money. I'm talking, of course, about Bitcoin's acceptance as legal tender in El Salvador. It's amazing what happens to usage when you complete the closed-loop payment system without forcing a reconnection to a fiat reserve. We're still talking about small numbers in comparison to DeFi, but it's still legal actual currency we're talking about for 6 million people, not tokenized fiat currency that rides crypto rails and might be shut off at a moment's notice. I'm sure I'll be wrong about Lightning again, but I could see Lightning capacity getting to 30,000 Bitcoin of capacity by the end of 2022, another 10x next year, thanks to Twitter, Taproot, and President Ukel's aggressive Lightning rollout plans, potentially higher if other countries like Paraguay or Ukraine follow the Bitcoin game theory. I like Lightning. It's cool. I'm a sucker for strike demos. I'm a sucker for the news. 2.7 million Salvadorians will get airdropped $30 in Bitcoin for downloading their new Chivo wallets, and which allows users to pay with Lightning on their phones. I'm sure it's all just propaganda. I'm a sucker for Twitter's Lightning tipping service going live to 186 million users. And I'm a sucker for believing Snowden might be onto something when he estimates countries with 650 million underbanked adults could make similar moves to El Salvador as a part of a post-USD monetary strategy. More than anything, I just want Bitcoin as a legal tender to work, and I don't want to be taxed 20% on my fucking coffee orders anymore. 
I'm getting worked up just thinking about how stupid our crypto policies are in the U.S. Good time. It's thing for my policy screed.